everyone, I'm Madeline Park, stylist and vintage fashion hound. I believe everything has a story, whether it be clothes or the people that wear them. This season, as we were forced to sit still, I wanted to travel through the stories of people in other places and explore how they were stepping out with a renewed sense of style. But like everyone else, I really wanted to step out too. After a difficult socially distanced year, the natural extrovert in me was desperate to socialise, interact and experience life outside of my own home. So this is the Style Stories Stepping Out bonus episode, where I was very grateful to have the opportunity to host and record a live presentation and fashion parade at Grand Days, my favourite vintage store in King's Cross, in front of a room full of actual people. Translating style stories into a live setting was always a goal for 2021, not only to enhance the visual experience of stories about fashion and style, but to strengthen, grow and connect with my circle of listeners and the creative community I've come to belong to. So please sit back, relax and enjoy listening to the style stories of the colourful characters that have defined King's Cross's history. You'll hear about Dulcie Deemer, Rosaline Norton, Carlotta, Juanita Nelson and Kim Hollingsworth. These queens of the cross may all have their own unique stories to tell, but like any great fashion tale, they unite in their power to perform, their strength to step out from conservative conventions, a forward-thinking creative spirit, and of course, their strong sense of style. And in the spirit of the ladies and legends that feature in this episode, next year's style stories is looking good. In 2022, you can look forward to more content in diverse forms and expect it to be bold, bright and times a little bit camp. Thank you for listening this year. I hope you have an inspired holiday period and come into 2022 ready to perform your style and parade your story. Okay, so thank you for joining me tonight. Um, I do have to say that it feels like a real privilege to be sitting in a room full of people having a drink and um, you know sharing some wonderful stories after the year that we've all experienced. Uh, my name is Madeline Park and I am a vintage fashion hound and host of podcast Style Stories. Uh, Style Stories launched in 2020 and shares the stories of creative people with a strong sense of style. Given the visual nature of fashion and style and the intimacy that comes with sharing other people's stories, it always felt like a natural evolution to move the podcast into a live experience um, and to step out of the audio format. So stepping out, we've done and we're here tonight. Um, fortunately and somewhat serendipitously, uh, Tamara and Tom graciously invited me into their store and uh, to, to host my first live event, which is fantastic. Um, I have been a big fan of Tamara's exacting eye on all this gorgeous vintage clothes that surround us tonight. And we're actually business neighbours, so I have my studio around the corner in Potts Point. Um, it seems, you know, a, a nice way to celebrate the walks, the various walks of life that kind of define the area. Um, and the, the area is known uh, for supporting local businesses and for supporting the kind of communion and collaboration of, of the commun creative community here. So to be able to do tonight um, as part of the Happy Hours Festival and in conjunction with the City of Sydney kind of 
speaks to the testament of that. Uh, what a better way to celebrate this eclectic community known for its unique ability to bring together glitter and grit than to tell the stories of King's Cross's glittering mile through the lens of style. Now, normally I would delve into my guests' personal histories to help understand their creative inspirations and how they like to express themselves. But if I was to think of the cross as a single entity, um, I would come up against uh, quite a few stumbling blocks and the first one being gender. Uh, as if uh, navigating the world of gender politics wasn't difficult enough, uh, King's Cross was actually originally named Queen's Cross and got renamed King's Cross because there was confusion with another area in Sydney. And that in itself says a lot. Uh, so debating about whether King's Cross would identify as a he or a she or a they seems a little futile. And uh, what seemed more appropriate was to honour its original title, title sorry, and comfortably hail them as a queen. Uh, so tonight will be about shining a glittering light onto the stories of the queens who have become the iconic identities of the glittering mile and whose style left a mark on the culture and community of King's Cross over time. So ladies, please enjoy your party, grab a drink, socialise. <laughs> to start our Queen's Parade, let's take a look at Dulcie Dima. Dulcie was a notorious character of the cross, rising to prominence in the 1920s and 30s. She wore many hats, so to speak, as a novelist, a poet, a thespian, a journalist, and even the first female boxing reporter. While Dulcie was born in New Zealand, she settled in the cross in 1922, after she separated from her husband, leaving six children to be raised by her mother. Um, <laughs> At the time, the cross was coming to its own and was the first kind of place in Sydney to really develop a cafe culture. Um, and it was increasing in diversity due to the um, influx of European migrants that were coming in that interwar period. So Dulcie mixed with a certain literary and artistic circle that was helmed by the famous painter Norman Lindsay. And the group was a mix of poor suffering artists. They were writers, they were poets, they were musicians, and they all probably congregated in this area, um, mainly because rent was affordable. Um, they would congregate at Theo's Club, and this is where Dulcie would earn her crown as the Queen of Bohemia in 1925. In terms of fashion, she was known to represent the joie de vivre, and I'm probably pronouncing that terribly, and, and our model's actually French, so I probably embarrassed her. Um, <laughs> um, this translates to the joy of living, um, and that, that defined the era. It was, um, you know, it was about embracing a kind of decadence and a joy um, and, a, and a certain hedonistic attitude. And Dulcie actually infamously wore a leopard skin, like an actual leopard skin with um, a dog, a, a dog's tooth around her neck to the artist ball in uh, 1923, I believe it was. So generally 20s fashion was to be defined by this new sense of freedom and a right to feminine expression as shown through the shorter drop-waisted dresses and cloche hats like our Dulcie is wearing tonight. There were short hairstyles and art deco designs. 
The Bohemian movement embraced the freedom of self-expression with an un un underlying debaucherous lifestyle that saw Dulcie partying the night away, high kicking and doing splits well into her 70s. Um, and in fact, there is a wonderful bar just on McClay Street called Dulcie's and is named after the legend that she is. While she defined an era and acknowledged that we find courage in our clothes, uh, this is something that she wrote, she had a certain irreverence to fashion at the time, deeming the lure of fashion to be more undermining than the habitual use of drugs and more destructive than the corrosive acid that eats like cancer. Those are her words. This kind of is testament to um, Dulcie's idea that she wasn't going to follow fashion trends um, or conform to any social mores of the time. Uh, but it also shows how ahead of her time was because she was basically in this article advocating the benefits of slow fashion, which is something that we often are talking about in the politics of fashion today. Thank you so much, Dulcie. Enjoy your party. <laughs> As the bohemian culture of the cross evolved, so did the colourful characters that would come to define it, like Rosaline Norton, <laughs> who became known in the 50s as the Witch of King's Cross. Like Dulcie, Rosaline hailed from New Zealand, but settled in the cross after leaving her husband in the early 50s. She literally lived around the corner on Brougham Street, and Dulcie and Rosaline actually mixed in the same bohemian circles with a joint desire to abandon conventional, conventional social ties and seek intellectual, artistic and spiritual freedom, as well as a desire for social change. From a young age, Rosaline identified as a witch, claiming her pointed ears, blue markings on her left knee and a, a bit of flesh that hung out on her body proved that she was born that way. More eccentric artist of the East than Wicked Witch of the West, her witchcraft actually drew upon diverse um, sources of things that we are familiar with, like yoga, and tantra, voodoo, and some spiritual philosophies. As an, as an artist, her work was very disruptive at the time and outrageous to the prudish, conservative, Christian mentality um, that defined the era. I mean, her work did include naked hermaphrodites, um, paintings of phalluses uh, turning into serpents and um, love affairs with black panthers. But compared to some of the things that might slide into our DMs today, I don't think any of us here tonight would necessarily bat an eyelid. <laughs> Rosaline was happy to live up to and even play up to her title of witch. She was a woman with unkempt hair, pencil-thin arched eyebrows and a focused scowl, occasionally donning a pointed witch's hat or a cat's mask. In keeping with her avant-garde sensibilities, she would be known to wear flamboyant blouses, puffing on an engraved cigarette holder, wear red, black and leopard print skin or continue to go against the grain by wearing men's clothing. So if the key shape of the decade for women was traditionally a feminine, exaggerated hourglass silhouette, you'd often find Rosaline in direct contrast, wearing a trench coat, decorative ties and the type of pleated pants that were particular, particularly defined by menswear, sorry, that particularly defined menswear at the time. In terms of her witchery and ritualistic practices, we know that Norton was not afraid to get her kit off um, and her ceremonies ranged from nakedness to full ceremonial regalia. 
She also apparently had quite the experimental sex life. Uh, she was openly bisexual and had a penchant for um, having sex with gay men because she liked to play the active roles, shall we say. <laughs> she also engaged in sex magic where she incorporated sex, in sex into her ritual practice, in uh, achieving orgasm by incorporating psychedelic drugs into her ceremonies. So, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow and, and Rosalind Norton might have had like a, a great conversation together if they ever have gotten to meet. Um, when asked by a reporter what she got out of her life as a witch, Norton pushed back her cat mask, lit a cigarette and replied, I get a life that holds infinite possibilities and is entirely satisfying to me in all planes of consciousness. Thank you, Rosaline. Now, if Rosaline Steyer was to represent a certain sense of independence in exploring the boundaries of creative and sexual identity um, and self-expression at the time, what better lead-in to the wonderful, inimitable Carlotta? <laughs> Carlotta is the stage name of Carol Bryan, who has become a household name in Australian television. Starting her career in the early 60s, Carlotta was an, an original cast member of the long-standing Lay Girls Cabaret show. She rose through the ranks to eventually become the show's witty compere, which earned her the title Queen of the Cross. Uh, one of its kind, Lay Girls became a landmark of the cross and gave a playful wink to the underbelly of strip clubs and the red light district that was starting to emerge in the area. Attracting international guests and celebrities alike, the cabaret show was performed entirely by men in drag who would lip-sync songs by Eartha Kitt and Shirley Bassey. <laughs> As a showgirl, Carlotta's fashion was inherently performative and her outfits were famously bedazzled by sequins, feathers and, of course, glitter. <laughs> the rise of popularity of drag shows in the 60s and the spectacular spectacle that was Carlotta reflected the sense of sexual liberation that came with a post-war freedom um, and the 60s was that time to liberate, celebrate and experiment. <laughs> Despite this, there was still a great disparage between the social acceptance of a man fabulous in women's clothing on a stage and a man in women's clothing on the street. And so Carlotta actually, one night after performing, face still full of makeup, got arrested on the streets of the cross because their face was still painted and they were accused of offensive behaviour. So like the queens that came before her, Carlotta was a pioneer. She was one of the first people to have a sex change operation um, in Australia and she challenged societal views on gender and sexuality and has since um, become a well-known activist for transgender rights. She was, is sorry, the recipient of a member of, of the Order of Australia for significant service to the performing arts and to the LGBTQ, sorry, LGBTIQ community. And there's a statue um, in King's Cross in her honour. Thank you, Carlotta. <laughs> if the intersection of activism and style were to come to define Carlotta's story, they certainly have defined the self-expression of our next queen, Juanita Nielsen. Juanita was a publisher and journalist who has become known for her activism and her associated disappearance. But in terms of wealth, fashion and influence, let's just say she was born with it. 
She was the heiress of the Mark, fam the Mark Foy family. Um, having uh, her family owned the grand luxury department store of the same name. Mark Foy's, for those too young in the room to know the reference, um, eventually became known as Grace Brothers and now is the Maya that we know today. But it was a luxury department store of grandeur um, and it, it showcased fashion and homewares and it was the type of department store that in the 50s and 60s families would get dressed up and they would come to go visit uh, the store that is now the courts on the corner of Elizabeth and Liverpool Street. Uh, it was at Mark Foy's when Nita started to hone in her activism skills and it gave her her first taste of fighting for something she believed in. She was clearly very passionate about the store, where as a young girl she'd been a glove model and had opened the Gearbox fashion boutique, which was aimed at teenagers. And it was this passion that saw her lead an unsuccessful um, shareholders' revolt in 1968. So she actually revolted against her own family for the... Um, company not to be taken over. So not long after that, she bought her place on Victoria Street in King's Cross, where she published her local newspaper called Now. Here she would wear distinctive clothing and a beehive wig, modelling fashions and hairstyles for her newspaper's feature pages. Juanita was often seen wearing a shift dress, like our Juanita is wearing tonight, uh, which became popular with women at the time due to its simple style, its adaptability to any situation and the way it suited all women. It was easy for a woman to shift around in the dress, dress hence the name. The term also signifies a certain shift in culture. The dress represented the youthful, free and revolutionary attitudes of the time. But it was Juanita's beehive that came to define her style. Wearing the hairstyle long before anyone else in Sydney, Juanita's beehive became a potent symbol of her ability to take on big ideas, her lack of, of fear of standing out and speaking up, and a certain confidence to be bold. And bold she was. Uh, she used now as a means to campaign against the proposed plans to replace Victorian era terraces with high rise apartment blocks in King's Cross. And her outspoken opposition to this redevelopment quickly um, gained her a lot of enemies that were powerful men um, in New South Wales at the time. As her cousin, um, Pip said she knew she was in a lot of danger and she was not prepared to sit, step down and be intimidated by anybody. Juanita was a woman who defied categorisation and has been immortalised as a hero and a certain voice of female empowerment from the time. There, as you may know, there's a community centre that has been um, named after her in Woolloomooloo um, and the mystery of her death uh, remains unsolved. She vanished in 1975 after visiting the carousel, which was previously Lay Girls, uh, and is presumed murdered. Attempts to find her body or close the case have proved fruitless, um, in part due to the corruption of the police that existed at the time. Despite this, the rise in the popularity uh, of her case has resurfaced, and you guys might have seen or, or watched um, the ABC have uh, recently produced a documentary and a podcast series called called Unravel True Crime Juanita um, and it's, it's incredibly interesting and it kind of hails uh, her life and, and, you know, is a symbol of uh, the powerful force that she was and, and why it's important to be retelling her story. So thank you, Juanita. <laughs>
Juanita's disappearance gives us an allusion to the underworld of organised crime and police corruption that were starting to define the area. The 70s saw many pivotal cosmetic changes to the cross, including the development of the tunnel, which sits behind us, and the iconic Coke sign, which sits above us. Um, uh, but it, it continued to be the home of many late-night venues. Its glittery reputation lost some of its shine as it came to take on more grit and became increasingly defined by sleaze, corruption and violence, all fuelled by sex and drugs. This storyline was the focus of Underbelly's third series, The Golden Mile, where our last queen of the night, Kim Hollingsworth, was a defining character. Kim moved to Sydney in the early 80s and despite wanting to be a police officer like her dad, she turned her hand to low-paying jobs like shop assistant, waitress, flower seller, before supplementing her income as a stripper and then as a prostitute where she would come and find herself in the cross. A tall, willowy brunette, but lovely blonde that we have here tonight, uh, she enhanced her popularity by having her teeth straightened, her nose bobbed and her breasts enlarged. Kim's working girl clothes are imagined to be tight-fitting tight lycra dresses and stockings that define the promiscuous women of the era and were associated with the late-night scene of the cross in the 80s and 90s. While she wasn't known for her fashion sense per se, her style and her story were very symbolic of the era. If police corruption was starting to define the area, it also started to define her story. So as the daughter of a policeman, she continued to have a really strong fascination with the Blue Heelers and was known to often be in their company in her working life. She even allegedly stripped for 300 policemen to raise money to send the Australian team to the Police Olympics. <laughs> Eventually in the 90s, she applied for the New South Wales Police Service but failed the physical agility test. Finally, she repassed the test and was issued her uniform. Um, she, once she was in the force, though, she did suffer harassment uh, as some of her colleagues may have recognised her from her past life and one suggested that she might want to retire from being a police and go back to working in a brothel. Um, this kind of came to the fore and the, indicative of the police corruption at the time, Kim started to become an undercover agent as she was encouraged to return to prostitution to collect information on police involvement in the sex industry. So like our other queens of King's Cross, she straddled both sides of the law and represented the duality of the area. Thank you, Kim. <laughs> the Cross's charm continues to be this balance of a certain duality, the glitter and the grit. It continues to be a melting pot for all walks of life and it continues to be ever-changing. Whether it be poetry or witchcraft, strip shows or cabaret, activism or art, the markings and attraction to the cross are its sense of entertainment and its performative value, as well as its ability to step out of norms and seek a desire for creative expression. Uh, the photographers Rennie Ellis and Wellesley Stacey, who were famous for documenting um, the real underbelly of the cross at the time, said in the 70s, 
The old timers will tell you the cross has had it. It's not like it used to be, they'll say. And they're right, of course, it's not. For King's Cross exists in a permanent state of mutation and herein lies its very existence. Its adaptability to change, its readiness to accept and absorb a new generation with new ideas, yet still re retain its unique sang -froid. While politics come and go and we see an increased uh, sense of gentrification in the area, I think there will always be a home for a forward-thinking, creative spirit and a reverence and respect uh, for the colourful history of characters that have come to define the Glittering Mile style and its story. I hope you've had a wonderful time hearing these stories and I would like to thank Tom and Tamara for having me and sharing their, their baby and their little um, part of King's Cross with me tonight. Um, I also want to thank my gorgeous models who have uh, taken on their characters. You know, we, we have only congregated um, in the last week or two and each of them have so wonderfully embraced their character, wanting to understand how they looked, uh, how they behaved, and um, I so appreciate the, the level of enthusiasm that they brought to uh, coming tonight. So thank you, Anne, who is our Dulcie, Eva, who is our Rosaline, Carol, our Carlotta, Anahi, our Juanita, and Natalie, our Kim. Thanks for joining me tonight. Uh, sorry. <laughs> I hope you stay safe and have a wonderful holiday period. <laughs>